Well, all skate weekend, it has been amazing. Uh, how many dads uh, and daughters were here Friday night? Okay, it, it, that's, that's it? You're not, and there's no whooping and hollering? Dads? You're only going to whoop and holler one night? Uh, uh, there you go. Uh, what a delight. It's my first daddy-daughter dance here. I, um, uh, and it was only my second in my life because I've got three sons. So I haven't been doing a lot of daddy-daughter dances, but I've done one with an adopted daughter a couple of years ago. And it was just amazing to stand up here and hear dads pledging and promising love, protection, and grace, and forgiveness, and guidance uh, to th- these daughters. And you, you, it, 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 I'd kind of been warned ahead of time, but it still didn't prepare me. You know, you hear all these, uh, the, the little girls and the, 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 the tone, and all this sweet little the voices in unison, and then the guys, and talking, and it was just this beautiful sound. And then our serve day yesterday, Joy Prom last night. Man, oh man, it's been good. So, uh, and we're glad you're here today. So we got one special treat, many special treats, but one that's already been mentioned. We've got special guests here, our kids. Kids, stand up for a second. We want to tell you we're glad you're here at this service. So in honor of our kids' presence here, I'm going to read a theological tome called Are You My Mother by P.D. Eastman. And um, so you guys can see it. I, I, was, I said, hey, I'll go down in the, to the camera and let it re- go over my shoulder, but they said that camera's not here. So is it, what camera back here? This camera? Okay, so they're pointing to that camera. So you guys can see this, if, I, if we kind of read this, you can see, you can get that close up. That is scary. I had no idea you guys could get that. Do you get it? Do you get that close up while I'm talking? That's trauma. You come to church and you experience trauma. Um, Honey, did you see he had not brushed his teeth? Um, Okay, so here we go. I'm trying to get over the fear of even talking right now, knowing you've got that power back there. You guys ready? P.D. Eastman, are you my mother? You guys know this. I've been told don't skip any pages because all the kids will know if I skipped a page. So here we go. A mother bird sat on her egg. The egg jumped. Oh, oh, said the mother bird. My baby will be here. He'll want to eat. I must get something for my baby bird to eat, she said. I'll be back. So away she went. The egg jumped. It jumped and jumped and jumped. Out came the baby bird. Where is my mother? He said. He looked for her. He looked up. He did not see her. He looked down. He did not see her. I will go and look for her, she sa- he said. So away he went. Stepping out of the nest. Down out of the tree he went. Down, down. It was a long way down. The baby bird could not fly. He could not fly, but he could walk. Now I will go and find my mother, he said. He did not know what his mother looked like. He went right by her. He did not see her. 
getting that wonderful little delicious gooey slimy worm out of the ground. Sorry, he didn't write that part. That was just my commentary. He came to a kitten. Are you my mother? He said to the kitten. So I'm going to need your help here. Let's go. Are you my mother? Let's hear it. I was okay. So the kitten just looked and looked and did not say a thing. The kitten was not his mother, so he went on. Then he came to a hen. Okay, there we go. He said to the hen, no, said the hen. The kitten was not his mother. The hen was not his mother. So the baby bird went on. I have to find my mother, he said. But where? Where is she? Where could she be? Then he came to a dog. He said to the dog, I'm not your mother. I'm a dog, said the dog. The kitten was not his mother. The hen was not his mother. The dog was not his mother. So the baby bird went on. Now he came to a cow. Are you my mother? He said to the cow, how could I be your mother? Said the cow, I am a cow. The kitten and the hen were not his mother. The dog and the cow were not his mother. Did he have a mother? I did have a mother, said the baby bird. I know I did. I have to find her. I will. I will. Now the baby bird did not walk. He ran. He ran. Then he saw a car. Could that old thing be his mother? No, it could not. The baby bird did not stop. He ran on and on. Now he looked way, way down. He saw a boat. There she is, said the baby bird. He called to the boat, but the boat did not stop. The boat went on. He looked way, way up. He saw a big plane. Here I am, mother, he called, but the plane did not stop. The plane went on. Just then, the baby bird saw a big thing. This must be his mother. There she is, he said. There's my mother. He ran right up to it. Mother, mother, here I am, mother, he said to the big thing. But the big thing just said, snort. Oh, you're not my mother, said the baby bird. You're a snort. I have to get out of here. But the baby bird could not get away. The snort went up. It went way, way up. And up, up, up went the baby bird. But now, where was the snort going? Oh, 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 what is this snort going to do to me? Get get me out of here. And just then, the snort came to a stop. Where am I? Said the baby bird. I want to go home. I want my mother. Then something happened. The snort put that baby bird right back in the tree, and the baby bird was home. And just then, the mother bird came back to the tree. Do you know who I am? She said to her baby. Yes, I know who you are, said the baby bird. You're not a kitten, and you're not a hen. You're not a dog. You're not a cow. You're not a boat or a plane or a snort. You are a bird, and you are my mother. Let's pray together and close in prayer and be dismissed. (laughs) Are you my mother? It's a question every one of us has. Maybe not are you my mother, but every one of us is born with with a, a magnetic north in our hearts, a yearning, a thirst from Augustine to Pascal this God-shaped vacuum. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We're always searching for home. Every human being, not just religious people. Ecclesiastes tells us that eternity is in every human heart, and we're constantly trying to find our way back home. 
We try to go to not, maybe not cows and kittens and dogs, but we go to popularity and we go to possessions and money and we go to power or addictions. We go to amusement. We go to relationships. We go to things that might be wonderful uh, service opportunities and things that might not be wonderful sinful opportunities. We're constantly trying to search and find home. We're all thirsting actually for the same thing. We're thirsting for life. We know what it means to exist because we're here, but we want to do more than exist. We want to live. And we're wandering around trying to find home. A couple of thousand years ago, a young teenager named John lived on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Their dad was a fisherman, so they were going to become fishermen. And John and his brother James had a nickname, Sons of Thunder. These guys lived large. They searched far and wide for their home. Not going up to kittens and cats and dogs to say you, but they're going to all the different things and you and I go to saying, will this fulfill me? Will this be the answer to the quest that I sense is embedded in me as a human being? One day they were... Uh, repairing the fishing nets for their father on the shore. And a young rabbi came up to them. His name was Yeshua, and he said, follow me. So they did. And over the next three years, they became very close to him. In fact, James and John, along with a guy named Peter, were the three closest friends to Jesus. And... uh, Of those three, John was the closest. He was referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Didn't mean that Jesus didn't love other disciples, but there was something special about their their connection. It It was actually John that Jesus looked to when he was hanging on the cross and said, take care of take care of my mother. And over those three years and that close proximity, these guys observed Jesus, and it wasn't his ideology that drew them, although he had ideas that they had never heard before. It wasn't just his morality that drew them, even though he had a freedom about how he lived that was within some parameters, but those parameters, instead of being suffocating, were life-giving. It was even more deep than that, because there are lots of religious leaders around, and how you and I would, would put it probably is that Jesus, was the, the, what they were drawn to, he was the first fully alive human being to walk the face of this planet since Adam and Eve before the fall, before they died in their rebelliousness, continuing to exist with a heart beating and lungs breathing, but dead to God and dead to the overall calling of the humanity. And it's what causes all of us to thirst. And then along comes Jesus. And John described him this way, he says, in him was life. Not just heart beating, lung breathing, but the life of God, the life that we were intended for. And that life is our light. And so he lived this long life, and as an old man, he had seen or at least heard of all of his friends, all his fellow disciples, martyred, killed for their faith. He was the only one who lived to be an old man. He was still persecuted for his, his belief in Jesus and the resurrection, but he, and he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, but he, he lived to see old age. When he was an old, an old man, he, he wrote a gospel. The Greek word is evangelion, glad tidings. 
It was a companion to three of his friends who had also written gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So John wrote, but he took a little bit different twist. He didn't cover a lot of the same things that they did, but many things he did. But at the end of his gospel, he made it real clear why he had written it. John 20, 31, these things I've written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you couldn't write, put that, that quill to parchment fast enough. And that by believing, not that you might have religion, but that you might have life, that you might find home in his name, that that belief would connect you with what you've been thirsty for all your life. So that's how his gospel ends. And that's why we're calling this series Awaken, because he's saying, I pray that you will read this, and by the Holy Spirit, you will awaken as a human being, moving from existing to living and thriving and flourishing, not just for your self-improvement. That's not what this is about. It's that we might be restored to the trajectory of living ultimately to the glory of God. So that's where the book ends. And we started this journey through it with his famous prologue. It's one of the most famous prologues in all of scripture. Today, we're gonna complete it. We've been in it a couple of weeks. He starts introducing the reader to Jesus saying, listen, if you want to grapple with this light, if you want to begin to experience it, he exposes the light of Jesus in, in a multifaceted way in the first five verses. He's kind of like putting, put, put, throwing the curtains back on four different walls of the darkness of our hearts to shed the light of Christ in. It's a, the light of his supremacy. If you want to grapple with Jesus, you've got to understand this is not just some religious leader. He's the supreme creator of all things and sustainer of all things. Got to understand, it's not just his, his, his supremacy, but it's his creativity. He made you. He knows how you, best how you operate. It's his vibrancy. That's that third curtain that we looked at and that he's, he, he comes not to improve our religiosity, but to restore our humanity. And the last one is his ability. He can do it. That was that first week. Then last week, we talked about how to begin to enter into that light. It's, we believe. Looking at a chair. I exercise faith in this chair right now. I evaluated, was it credible? I evaluated, is it relevant to my need? And then finally I sat. And this, all three of those, as we talked about last week, are part of believing. And when I, I believe on Jesus and trust what he did for me on the cross, I'm born. There's a new birth that takes place. It might look the same on the outside, but I'm, I'm born again, as Jesus talked about in John 3. And And that leads me into a rhythm of belonging where I belong to God in intimacy and to others. Now let's pick up the action in verse 14 of John 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can look on the screens. By the way, if you don't own a Bible, you can pick one up at the welcome desk as our gift to you. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word. It'll take us a while to get through this because I'm going to stop a couple of times. I can't just fly back past that. All right, here's, here's your, 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 your pop quiz. What's the Greek word that is being translated with the word word? We talked about it two weeks ago. Anybody? Anybody? Lagos. It was a concept very familiar to philosophers of the day. 
Because in the midst of an ever-changing world from Heraclitus and others saying you can't enter the same river twice, then what keeps this world from being chaos? It's the logos, the reason. This, this metaphysical force, and it starts getting really heavy here, but it was, it was common understanding. Here's this Galilean fisherman writing this, but then he turns it on its ear when he alludes to something right at the beginning that this, this word, this logos, is not, the logos is the, the, what holds the universe together. It is what created the universe, but it's not this impersonal force. The Lagos is personal. And he alludes to that at the beginning, but now he nails it and says one of the most astounding things in all of Scripture. And I don't care how many times you've read this, I want you to read it and linger on it right now. The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. The Creator of all things became a human being and made His dwelling among us. Now, the Greek word that's translated made His dwelling is a word that was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament originally written in Hebrew, but then as more and more Greek-speaking people uh, came on the scene and began to, uh, embracing the Old Testament, they wrote a Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. And after the fall, God promised restoration, and throughout Old Testament history, typologies, predictions, illustrations of what He was doing in redeeming. I'm going to have a people, and I'm going to redeem them, but I, that, that people, for them to be restored into relationship with me, they can't just come in their sin. Their sin has to be taken care of. So you had a sacrificial system, but part of that dwelling of God coming once again and being restored into relationship with His people was personified in the tabernacle that became the temple. And then Jesus referred to Himself, by the way, as the temple. And then now you and I are called the temples of the Holy Spirit. But back then, the first, the first indication of God restoring relationship was in the tabernacle. Guess what Greek word? Tabernacle. It's the same one that's in this text. And He made his dwelling among us, skinu, is the word. Meaning, literally, he pitched his tabernacle. He pitched his tent among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Said, guys, listen, I, again, John can't put his quilt of parchment fast enough. He grew up as a, as a Jewish young man and learning Jewish history and understanding tabernacle and realizing all it makes sense now. What God was doing was preparing us to understand that we can now relate with Him by His provision, but He can now come dwell, dwell in our midst. And it was the tabernacle back then. And now Jesus Himself is the Creator and He, he lived among us. There are several distinctions between John and his synoptic companions, as they call them, the synoptic gospels. They're the three oranges, he's the apple, and he's the poet. He's still inspired by the Holy Spirit, just he's not repeating a lot of the things. There are a few things that are different, like he doesn't mention any of the parables 
that the other uh, Gospels do. Uh, not because he didn't believe him, but because they've already been said. And I think some people have written appropriately. He believed Jesus' life was parable illustration enough for what he did. There were some, some plenty of similarities, the resurrection, crucifixion, John the Baptist, we'll talk a little bit more next week about. But uh, one distinction that you will notice as you're reading through John is that there's no Christmas story. It's no stable, no Bethlehem. Did he not believe that? Of course he did. Those were already written. Why repeat it? Actually, he does talk about the Advent, the nativity, and it's in this verse. Verse 14 is John's nativity. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That summarizes Christmas right there. And then he keeps going. He says, John testified. Now, John's not referring to the, uh, the apostle who's writing this. It's referring to John the Baptist. So we'll talk a little bit more. Pastor Nathan will walk us through John the Baptist as well as some of the other disciples that are mentioned in the next section next week. He says, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now he's back to talking about Jesus. He says, out of his fullness, meaning out of Jesus' fullness. We've all received grace in place of grace already given, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So everything is completing. It's coming to its epoch conclusion. No one's ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. Now let's go back to verse 14, and we're going to camp out on that. One of the great summary statements about Jesus. You want to know if Jesus understands your journey? The Word became flesh. What John is doing in this text is he's combining both two two kind of big words, transcendence and eminence. Eminence is right here, being present. If I'm eminent with you, I'm right next to you. Transcendence is is the otherness of God, and Jesus is both transcendent and eminent. God is both transcendent and eminent. He's transcendent over all creation, but He's eminent. He's present here. He's big, and He's also small in this text refers to Jesus in His transcendence and eminence. And what John is doing in this prologue is he's painting a picture so we'll understand the Jesus who is, and as a result, we must relate with Him as He is and realize He's he's leading the dance in this. A lot of times we get all confused. Religious circles, we think Jesus is going to come along and do what we want Him to do. And we've got to understand, okay, who's leading the dance? Who's more important in this equation? I read about a CEO of a, a Fortune 300 corporation that uh, was coming home from a gala banquet dance with his wife, tuxedo, gowns, all the thing. But he had an early morning flight. So instead of staying at the, the, the banquet facility, the hotel, they were driving back home. It was really, really late or more like early. It was one or two in the morning, middle of the night. And he looks at his gas gauge of his Mercedes and realizes, okay, I got I to get some gas. I, I don't want to have to do it in the morning. So he pulls into an all-night convenience store, pulls up to the pump, pumps the gas. His wife goes in to get some, some water and other things. And she comes out just chuckling and kind of, and they're driving out of the parking lot. And he says, what's up? And she said, 
That is just, that's incredible. That, that, the guy, the, the night clerk at the convenience store is Chris. I dated Chris in high school. And uh, he gets this smile on his face. He's driving. He said, I bet I know what you're thinking. And she says, oh, really? What? He says, I bet you're thinking how lucky you are because you married me, the CEO of a Fortune 300 company, or, but you could have been married to the night clerk at a convenience store. <laughs> and she says, actually, that's not what I was thinking. What I was thinking is if I had married him, he'd be the CEO of a Fortune 300 company, <laughs> and you could be the night clerk at a convenience store, right? Oh, I love, none of the men were clapping, but all the women were. Uh, but we know it's true. We, but we all do that. In all of our relationship, we usually misconstrue who the more important person is. And we often think we're the most important person in this deal, and we're not. And John's wanting to set the stage and understand, you need to realize this, Jesus is leading this dance. He's, tr- he's transcendent. Now, he's also imminent. He's right there. He's for you. He's for what you're dealing with. But he's the Alpha and the Omega of all creation. And he culminates with this statement. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And then in that second, sen- second sentence that we find in verse 14, you see three words that pop out. Let's bring up verse 14 again. We have seen his glory. Note the word glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And those three words complete this package of Jesus, Him making a case for the light of the world, Him saying, this is how you enter into that light. You would believe and you're born again and you belong. Now you want to live in that light. It will involve you living in the realm of His, of, of, of his grace and His truth and His glory. What's the so what of that on a Monday, not just in a church service on a Sunday? What's, what's the significance? Look, let's look at those three real quickly. Here's number one. When I'm coming in, living in the light, I'm engaging with Jesus. And as I'm engaging with Jesus, I'm engaging, I'm engaging with the grace of God for my restoration. I want to be restored into the original purpose I'm made for as a human being. And and so often we think, to do that, if I'm going to be actualized as a human being, it's all up to me. And we elevate ourselves. Yet, we're not even in charge of the electrical impulse that's causing our heart to beat. We pretend, we like to think that we're the captains of our own soul. masters of our own destiny, but we're pretty vulnerable. And there's, we can try to self-improve all we want, but it comes to a point where this notion of our sin and our rebelliousness before God is created an irreparable damage in me as a human being. I'm still in His image. I can still laugh, cry, play, create, love but things are muted. I need restoration. I was reading about a guy, his name's Alan Golding, is a missionary in the Philippines for many years, and he was in North Luzon, an island in the Philippines, and uh, Baguio City is a place where there is a, 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 a silver craft 
that is celebrated. It's called the St. Louis Silver Company. These silversmiths go into training and they make beautiful silver. And as a young man, Alan had purchased a money clip from the silversmith. You get it at a better deal because they're in training. And he used that for a quarter of a century. And then it it broke, and he kind of put it aside. And then he knew one time that they were going to head back to North Lausanne. He said, let's go back to the St. Louis uh, Silver Company. So he put that broken money clip in his pocket, and they went around. Then he showed it to one of the guys. He just picked one of the silversmiths. They had a bunch of guys at tables around. And uh, he showed him the broken money clip, and the guy smiled, actually laughed. He said, this is mine. I, we all do our own unique designs. This is mine. Nobody else did this design. And Alan said, uh, you know, small world. The guy was still there. He was now an instructor there. Uh, Alan said, can you fix it? Can you fix it? It's been broken for a couple of years. It will serve me well, but I'd really like to keep using it. Can you fix it? And the guy said, of course I can fix it. I made it. Of course, He can fix you. He made you. But it's according to His grace. Grace is God given us, not what we deserve, but what we need. So it's, a lot of people think of Christianity and religion as the same thing. Uh, Christianity, yes, is a world religion, but there's something far different. There's so much about religion where the, the symbol is the scale. You know, you, you, if the, the better you are, the less mad God will be and the more He loves you. you, you the heavier your, your good works are, uh, the, the higher God will think of you. Kind of that, that measuring going back to the scale. Actually, the symbol of Christianity, as John Stott talks about, is the cross. It's not the scale. But so often we approach our lives thinking the better I am, the more He'll love me and the better off things will be. He will not love me any more tomorrow than He does today. And the reason for that is not because He's stingy with His love, but because He's lavished everything He's got at me. I am fully embraced because of Jesus. So Ephesians chapter 1 he, Paul uses an amazing word. He says, in him we have redemption. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Now that word lavished is a Greek word we've talked about before, perisuo. It means lavish, extravagant. It, it means abundant. It means pull out the stops and pour it all on. God does not dole out His grace, He's saying, saying, hey, if you've been good enough today, I'll give you a little bit. You'd be a little bit better tomorrow, and I might give you a little bit more. I might embrace you a little bit more. Last week we talked about once I've believed and I'm resting in Him, I can know His full, unconditional embrace through Jesus. It's not a cheap uh, grace. It's not Him looking the other way regarding my sin. It's it being paid for. Romans chapter 5, verse 17, for if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, referring to Adam, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision, guess what Greek word is behind abundant provisions translated that? Perisuo. Actually, it's perisos, but it's, it's the same word. Lavish, extravagant, God's extravagant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Where are they getting that from? John 10.10. 10. 
The thief comes, Jesus says, to only to steal and to kill and destroy. He's, he's after robbing you of everything that God has created for His glory and your good. He says, but let me tell you why I've come. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Guess what Greek word is behind that? Same one, parasols. Have it to the full. I, I've come that you might have life and have it lavishly, extravagantly abundantly over the top and people start getting real nervous saying well that sounds like an easy belief you know kind of Jesus saying hey I'll be your mascot nothing of the sort he simply wants to overwhelm us not with self-actualization or self-improvement or positive mental attitude he wants to overwhelm us with his restoration I made you and I want to restore you to my father's glory but there's a second aspect of this light that I, want to, I need to engage with. It's not just His grace, but His truth. When I engage with His grace, it's for my restoration. When I start relating with Jesus for His truth, it's for my freedom. Truth is not to make us mean, judgmental people. It's to make us free people that are restored into a right relationship with the Father. And the whole notion of truth, it's hard to come by these days. We read about this kid who went to... Uh, um, college, his dad was a track star at the university, and he wanted him to try for track. He said, Dad, I'm not, I, I'm not a track star. He said, I want you to try out. So the first heat of the tryout, he was paired up with the guy, I don't know what his name, I think it was John Williams. I read the name. I don't remember it, but the track star, he was the champion of the college. So he's running against him in the first heat. And it was just the two of them. And the guy left him in the dust. I mean, the guy finished the race, went out for a hamburger and came back and he was still trying to finish maybe. I don't know, but it was, it was not pretty. And he was thinking, how am I going to tell dad this? So he was thinking about how to word it. And he wrote him a letter and says, dad, I was paired with, you know, Evan Williams, whatever the track star's name, his dad would know of him. He's the best miler at the school. And I want you to know, he and I, I was paired with him, but he finished next to last, and I finished second. I'm just going to let you think about that for a minute. And he's, he's wording it to lead away. Both were true statements, but they were not ultimately accurate. We do the same thing like with our sin. He speaks truth to us regarding our condition. Thankfully, it's in the context of grace. But He comes along and He speaks truth because the enemy does the exact opposite. Jesus says in John chapter 8, you belong to your father, the devil. He's speaking, by the way, to some religious folks. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he's a liar and he's the father of lies. Abraham Lincoln one time was, was asked if you, uh, if you called a sheep's tail a leg, how many legs would it have? And Abraham Lincoln said, four. And they said, no, if you called the tail a leg, it would have five. He said, no, 
The tale is a tale, no matter what you call it. The truth is, has four. We live in a culture that's twisting the truth, that's altering things, calling evil good, and calling good evil, and even lawmakers in New York City, the heartbreaking decisions that they've made about life. And here we are in the midst of this culture. And Jesus says, let me speak truth to you. Let me lead you down the true path. I'll do it in the context of grace. And let me tell you the result. As a human being, a lot of people say, well, the truth of Jesus is going to suffocate me. Jesus said, no, it's going to liberate you. John chapter 8, verse 32, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you impressively religious, very judgmental. And no, what what would the truth do? Set you free. It's the owner's manual. Third John 4 is one of John's letters. He wrote it, the Revelation, he wrote the gospel in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He said, I have, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Calling the gospel the gospel. And living right there and saying, Jesus, would you lead me in the truth? Instead of us saying, let's determine our own truth. If truth is truth, it's set, whether we try to try to change it and call a leg a tail or not. What are some of the great questions of the day, the questions that you and I need to grapple with? Questions like, who is God? And what's right and wrong? And who are human beings? Where does our creativity come from? Where does our appreciation of beauty come from? What, what about that longing in every human heart? Where does it come from? What is history? Whose story is it? Where will we get the answer to those? Will we're in a crisis of truth in our culture where everybody's making up their own truth, and as a result, you're backing away from the inherent definition of truth, and truth is something that we can approach, and it's either we abide by it or we don't abide by it, and Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, you follow me, and you'll be restored into the dance you were created for as a human being, and John writing as an old man is saying, in him he was full of grace and truth. Grace without truth, dangerous stuff. It ceases to be the grace of God, becomes something where we invent something to feel better. Truth without grace becomes very mean. Grace and truth is restorative to a human being. And look at that last question, whose story is it? It's the third aspect of His light that we engage with, and it's His glory. If I'm going to live in the light, I'm going to live according to the grace of God and the truth of God. First is for the, 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 the grace of God is for my restoration. The truth of God is for my freedom, but I also need to engage with the glory of God, which is for my purpose, my meaning, my significance. He's f- full of glory. We've seen His glory. The glory of God is, is a, a difficult concept for people, yet it's His essence. It's not an attribute. It, the Hebrew word for glory is kabod. It means weight, significance. God's glory is His weightiness, its significance. It's who He is. He's created all things for His glory. It's not an ego thing. He doesn't have an ego. Everything that has been made is to magnify Him. And you and I find our freedom, we find our restoration when we begin to live to the glory of God. Christopher Parkening, a classical guitarist, I've got several of his, his CDs. Amazing. 
By the age of 30, he had won all the awards, made all of his fortune, and was just totally bored, moved to Montana to a ranch. There became a world champion fly fisherman, but, but still empty. He, was, he had that, are you my mother thing going on. And I, I didn't find it in a guitar, I didn't find it in a fly rod, I didn't find it in a bank account, I didn't find it in a piece of property. And he came to Christ. And he came to the liberation of what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, which is a result of that truth in Habakkuk chapter 2 that we talk about a lot. Before the fall, the glory of God was complete, covering everything, but then a rebellion happened, so there are aspects of who we are that are not glorifying to Him. We're in this redemption, restoration process, and then one day... Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, one day the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But every day when I'm in Christ, I'm watching the tide turn. It might be a little, it might be a lot. It might be through a word, an act of service. It might be through somebody else coming to Christ or me just speaking grace into a cashier. It might be me designing a skyscraper or writing a poem. But I'm participating in something that one day the glory of the Lord will once again cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So you and I, as followers of Christ, fully alive, are living to His glory, acknowledging I'm not the most important person in this relationship. He is. And we're exalting Him, and we're putting ourselves in the right place, not in a self-punitive thing, but we're putting ourselves, speaking the truth and walking in humility and saying, you know what, I'm not the star of this show. And people say, wait a minute, for you to be significant, you've got to be the star of the show. Jesus says, you want to find your life, you need to lose it. And understand that the Father is the star. But you're created and you're significant. Being small is not the same thing as being insignificant. And so often we try to bludgeon our way through life to be significant, to be important to find meaning. And Jesus says, your meaning comes from my view of you. Back in the 17th century, Louis XIV was king of France. And he was king for 72 years. Became king when he was four years old. He didn't make a lot of governmental decisions then. He was coronated when he was 15 and really achieved power when he was 21. But he reigned. Versailles, this amazing palace outside of Paris that some of you have been to, was created by him. He nicknamed himself the, the Sun King because everything revolved around him. His ego? needed something the size of Versailles to fit in. And he told the, uh, the, ch the court chaplain that he had appointed, the preacher, that when he died, he wanted in his funeral in Notre Dame, he wanted all the lights, the candles to be extinguished except for one candle that was on his coffin. And he instructed this court chaplain, Bishop Messiaen, 
He said, then explain this candle is to depict my greatness. I want people to remember for 72 years my greatness. So Massillon, he did that. And the lights in Notre Dame were extinguished. But Massillon was somebody who always spoke truth to the king. He did not kowtow to him. He didn't tickle his ears. And this is to be no exception. And everybody knew this candle was depicting the greatness that King Louis wanted everyone to be aware of. And in the midst of that vast cathedral, Massillon came up to that single candle that was to signify a human being's greatness, and he snuffed it out. And then in the darkness he said, only God is great. And if I can come to that realization as a human being, it's something that will fulfill me. Let's retask this candle and say this is the candle of Jesus. Jesus says, you want to find your life, lose it in me. Acknowledge that I alone am great in your life. And you know what? It's okay. You'll find significance there in a way you've never found it before. You'll find home. I'm about to give you a benediction. Before I do, I'm going to take a big risk. I'm going to have you stand. The reason it's a risk is some of you will be tempted to make a beeline for the parking lot. I want you to take 60 seconds and stand in the presence of a reminder that Jesus is the light of the world and He alone is great. And if you and I want to know life, it's Him. Just 60 seconds, and then I'm going to give you the benediction. But look at this light and embrace the glory of God, the truth of God, the grace of God for your significance and meaning and freedom and restoration. That shines in the darkness. There is a light that shines in the darkness. His name is Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank You for this reminder. A reminder of grace and truth and glory that as we're scurrying about our lives like that little bird looking for its mother. We're scurrying about our lives looking for home, looking for significance and purpose and freedom and restoration. 
And we think the answer is to exalt ourselves. The answer is to humble ourselves and let you be exalted. And may we trust you to find significance that we can find nowhere else in the gospel of Jesus. In the grace of Jesus, in the truth of Jesus, in the glory of Jesus. And I pray this in the name of the light of the world. Amen. Amen.